0: Today on Something You Should Know, discover the 40% rule. It's what Navy SEALs use to squeeze every ounce of mental toughness out, and you can use it too. Also, going to the doctor or hospital requires
1: you be on your toes. Preventable medical errors are the third leading cause of death in the United States, right behind heart disease and cancer. And that's something that you can avoid becoming a statistic from, Also,
0: how organized are you? Probably not as organized as you'd like.
2: You can remember back in school that there were certain children who had, oh, their pencils always sharpened, they were ready to go, they had their papers with their name on it being passed in just in time, and then the rest of us were looking for things. Looking for the paper, looking for the pencil, looking to sharpen the pencil, and that's most of us.
0: And punctuation in text messages. It's tricky. A period in the wrong place can completely change the meaning. Isn't that a statistic that you just heard in the opening montage that, that medical errors are the third leading cause of death? I mean, that, that just so astonishes me. And I'm glad we're going to talk about it today in just a moment with somebody who can explain the problem and also what you can do to make sure you're not a victim of medical errors. First up today, the 40% rule. One thing that Navy SEALs are known for is their, their mental toughness. And one way they access their mental toughness is with the 40% rule. That rule states that when you think you're done, whatever it is, exercising, working, studying, you're really only 40% done. You can do more. In fact, you can do 60% more. We develop these mental blocks and, and these patterns over the years that keep us in our comfort zone, but... The fact is that you can run farther, you can learn more, you can resist your vices longer. We instinctively know this because when it really counts, we're all able to do it. We tap into that reserve. People do it running marathons or or pulling all-nighters for the big test. When it counts, people can do it. The trick is to do it more often, not just in those big moments. And it seems that the more you do it, the more resilient you become, and the more that that mental toughness becomes part of who you are. So the next time you feel like giving up, remember you've still got another 60% left. And even if that sounds too much, well, you surely have another 30% left. And that is something you should know. We don't really think of it in these terms necessarily, but when you go to the doctor or the hospital, you're engaging in a consumer transaction. You're the customer. But we often don't approach it that way, and that, turns out, can cause big trouble for you as the patient. And here to discuss this is Leslie Michelson. He is the founder and chairman of Private Health Management. He is the former CEO of the Prostate Cancer Foundation, and he's the author of a book called The Patient's Playbook. Welcome to the podcast, Leslie. Thank you. Mike, it's very nice to be here. So from what I see in the book and have heard you speak about, we have a problem in the world of medicine in this country that directly affects all of us as patients. So let me have you just, just lay out what the problem is.
1: The problem is really straightforward, and it deals with the inability of many people to understand how to use the consumer DNA that they use across the rest of their lives when it comes to getting the very best medical care for themselves and their loved ones.
0: And as a result of well, what's happening?
1: Well, it's, you know, there are two things that happen. One's the downside, and the other's the missing of the upside. The downside is, although we in America are able to provide people the very, very best medical care in the world, our healthcare delivery system does not do that reliably. Preventable medical errors are the third leading cause of death in the United States, right behind heart disease and cancer. And... And that's something that you can avoid becoming a statistic from if you learn how to become an effective healthcare consumer. So that's avoiding the downside. And then the other part, which is exciting, is making sure that you benefit from the upside. As everyone who reads the papers and watches the news knows, we're in the golden age of biomedical research. There are far better diagnostics, safer, and more effective therapeutics than anybody would have imagined possible even a decade ago. If you become a savvy healthcare care consumer, if you learn how to harness that consumer DNA that you use to plan a vacation, select a school, rent a car, buy a house, all of those sorts of things, and you learn how to use that in healthcare, care, you can make sure that you and your loved ones benefit from these remarkable advances.
0: That is a, a stunning statistic that death from medical errors is the third leading cause of death.
1: It stuns me as well. It's a big number, but it's been documented in study after study after study. And, you know, we all know that tobacco is a killer, and there isn't anybody alive today who isn't aware of that. We probably lose almost as many people from preventable medical error as we do from tobacco today. And part of my life's mission is to, to sound the warning siren with respect to that, to get people's attention on it. Because if we can, and we know how to solve this problem. We've done it in commercial aviation. You know, commercial aviation is inherently dangerous. But we have a culture of safety in commercial aviation that works really well because on average, every year in the United States, we lose a couple of people to commercial aviation accidents. And that's not to say that those are unimportant lives. Every life is precious. But that's a very small number relative to what I'm talking about. And if we could take and recreate that kind of culture in medicine, if we could take the kind of culture that, that Apple has in terms of excellence in the production of their cell phones or Intel in their chips or, or even Zappos in their shoe delivery, okay, and bring that into medicine, there'd be a whole lot more people alive at the end of every year in the United States of America.
0: Well, as you say, in airlines, in, in the airline industry, the, there is a culture of safety. How would you describe the culture in medicine if it is not safety? W- what is it?
1: Look, the, the provision of healthcare services is one of the most complex undertakings in our entire society. You know, human biology is even more complex than physics. We're beginning to really understand it, but it is it is remarkably difficult to do all that. The number of things that can go wrong in a human body is an extraordinary number, and they interact with one another. So physicians and nurses are the most hardworking and dedicated professionals I've ever met in my life. They're all trying to do the very best, but they struggle because they don't always have the resources they need to deliver the routine, quality care that they want to. There are changes and shifts in hospitals. There's the introduction of new communication technologies and electronic medical records that are kind of first, second generation. They need to be more advanced. They need to be more sophisticated. And the the reimbursement system doesn't help. The regulatory system doesn't help. Everything is focused on things other than making our national priority the elimination of medical error. And if we were to make that the cultural imperative, we will defeat it. We will win.
0: I would imagine that within the medical community there must be examples of, of places where this is already happening, right?
1: Absolutely. There are what I call green shoots, where people have focused on it, embraced it, and do tremendous work with it. So for example, there's a fabulous institution in Northern California, in Fremont, California, called the Washington Hospital Healthcare System, which is a district hospital that serves the community in which it finds itself. It's halfway between San Jose and Oakland. And they've got a tremendous visionary CEO there by the name of of, um, uh, Nancy Farber. And Nancy has made safety and and reporting and accountability um, an integral part of what they do. So they measure all the things that need to be measured. They report them to their community. They take every mistake. They regard it as a treasure, not because it happened, but because you can learn from it. And there are lots of other examples across the country of doing that. But, you know, you can only have so many priorities in an institution. And when you're under economic stress from the reimbursement system and regulatory stress for disclosure and pressures from the unions, from the doctors, from the carriers... the difficulty of putting in electronic medical records and privacy rules, the fundamental issue of safety isn't frequently the top priority. And it needs to be.
0: So is this a policy problem that, that needs to change and a cultural problem that needs to change within medicine? Or are there things people can do to at least watch out for themselves?
1: I think it's both. I think every participant in the system, can alter what they do, and we're talking to regular people who ultimately all become patients at one point or another, and everybody can do things so that they don't become one of those statistics. So for example, if you're an inpatient in a hospital, there's this paradox because hospitals are among the, the, the most extraordinary life-giving institutions anybody's ever created, yet On average, each inpatient in the hospital, the data show, has a medication error a day. Most not significant, but some of them are. So what I encourage people to do if they're an inpatient is have somebody with them. Have an advocate with them who review their chart to make sure that everything on it is accurate. Who review every medication to make sure that's the exact thing that the doctor prescribed and that every test has been thought through and that the attending physician who's got principal responsibility is sure that that's something that needs to get done. Because as the patient, you're going to be disoriented. You might be recovering from pain medications after surgery. You might be fatigued. You, you're going to be emotionally compromised. You need to have somebody with you.
0: Well, I, I would want somebody with me. I mean, who, who wants to go to the hospital by themselves? But as you say, it makes good medical sense as well. Leslie Michelson is my guest. He is the founder and chairman of Private Health Management and former CEO of the Prostate Cancer Foundation and author of The Patient's Playbook. A shout-out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, for as long as I can remember, I have had to deal with seasonal allergies, stuffy nose, watery eyes, the whole deal. And the worst for me is it messes up my sleep. I wake up because I can't breathe right. And during the day, well, you know, if I'm working and I'm all stuffed up, then my voice sounds weird and this is how I make my living. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. I use it, and if you struggle with allergies, you should too. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Now, I've been using Claritin-D for years because, well, it, just, it takes care of the problem. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and Powerful Relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. And continuing our conversation about health care, I think sometimes people... Well, I don't know how, what they're thinking, but I can understand people thinking, well, you know, this is the doctor's hospital. They, they You know, the, these people that work here, they're professionals. They should know what they're doing, and I don't want to be a bother. I don't want to say, oh, let me see the chart. and You know, that, that I just let, let these people do what they're supposed to do because they're the professionals.
1: And they are the professionals, and they are deserving of our enormous esteem and respect because what they do is so stressful and so difficult and so challenging and so consequential. But at the same time, if you handle it in a respectful and responsible way, my experience, and I've been doing this for over three decades, is that the doctors and the nurses will embrace you. Because every doctor, every nurse I talk to says, look, we're working as hard as we can. We just wish we had more resources to provide the kind of excellence and thought and time to each patient that we want to. So my view about that is, let's tap into the 320 million Americans who, at some point in time, are be going to come are going to become patients, and get that energy, that intellect, that care, that love, to complement the doctor. So it's not a matter of looking over people's shoulders and doing gotcha; it's a matter of partnering with them. And across the entire service industry, if you talk to people, who are lawyers, accountants, strategic planners, advertisers, the people that provide services, they will tell you that they can provide a higher level of service if they have a more engaged client. And that's what I'm suggesting people do with their physicians. Become engaged. Learn about your disease. Go online to the responsible resources so that you understand the dynamic of your disease, you understand the treatment options, and that you can become a more intelligent and a more informed decision maker and participant, it will help your physicians, your nurses, your nurse practitioners do a better job for you.
0: Since you've been doing this so long, where, where do you think typically the, the the disconnect happens? If there is a one or two spots where that typically happens, where where are things falling apart?
1: You know, falling apart's a little bit extreme. I wouldn't use that. But um, here, here's the metaphor I would suggest. You know. Accidents, automobile accidents, tend to happen at intersections, right, where there's a traffic light. And the vast majority of automobile accidents happen at intersections. There's a stop sign. There's something going on. And it's at the intersections that we see um, a lot of breakdown in the coordination and communication. When somebody goes into the emergency room, that's an intersection. And they need to be prepared to make sure that all of the med techs and the emergency docs know who they are, what happened to them. What medications are on, what diagnoses they have, what allergies they might have, and it 's too easy to make a mistake there and then if you go from the emergency room into a floor, there'll be a whole different staff, and they may not have had everything transcribed accurately and then when you get discharged from the hospital, you need to make sure that you have a discharge summary so that you know what diagnosis you have, what the medications are, what's the schedule, what you need to look for, and make sure that the doctors who are going to be taking care of you outside the hospital have all of that information with full fidelity.
0: Are you seeing, as you have worked in this for some time, are you seeing more and more patients doing this or not?
1: Oh yeah, we're seeing a groundswell of people learning how to become effective advocates for themselves and their loved ones, people understanding the need to do it, and a growing receptivity within the healthcare community so that, you know, our parents or grandparents approach to physicians was the doctor says and the patient does without question, that's archaic. That isn't what the doctors want and it doesn't get the doctors what they want which is the best outcome for a patient and it certainly doesn't get the patient the best outcome. So as technology is exploding, um, as baby boomers are becoming the principal recipients of care as they age into that zone, um, as doctors are learning um, how to partner with patients, to be open and receptive to it. I'm seeing a very, very significant change on all kinds of fronts. And I think it's all for the good.
0: I think when people hear about medical errors, when they hear that term, medical errors, they think about, you know, the, the guy that got the wrong leg chopped off kind of thing. You know, the stuff that makes headlines, it makes juicy stories. But that's not what, you, I mean, I guess that does happen, but that's not where the problem really is, is it?
1: I agree with you very astute observation. That's the salacious stuff that gets to the front page, but it's generally much more subtle. It's, you know, a physician doing a major surgery that they don't have the expertise or resources to do. It's um, And we we, we saw this just the other day with a patient of ours who was in the hospital, had an allergy to penicillin, and um, was being about to be given a significant portion a significant dosage of penicillin which would have triggered a very substantial allergic reaction and the patient's advocate was with her and said wait a minute my mother's allergic to penicillin you've got to give her a different antibiotic so it is those sorts of things and once they happen they can trigger all sorts of cascading effects that go down the road so it's that subtle change that results in a cascade that can be ultimately, unfortunately, lethal or result in irreversible stuff. It's Sometimes it's a misdiagnosis. We have a, a, a patient right now who went to his ENT for five years, twice a year, with increasing pain in his throat, and every year the ENT gave him a scope to examine it and said, you know you have reflux, and every year he gave the patient A stronger drug to take care of it and it worked for a little while and then the pain got worse. Well, it turned out after five years the internist was scared because this should not be going like this, um, ordered some drug... ordered some blood tests, found out that he had very high level of cancer markers and he had a head and neck cancer that had probably been growing for five years. Fortunately, I think we were able to defeat it, but rather than having a two hour surgery and a two week recovery, he had to endure six months of chemo radiation and probably twelve months of recovery. That's what happens when doctors
0: make mistakes is but that uh, that's a really good point because is that a mistake, or is that a just he read the the symptoms wrong i mean you know sometimes symptoms Uh, mask themselves. I mean, is it a mistake, or is it just
1: no one would have caught that? I think, frankly, that his cancer was so large um, that everyone should have caught it. Maybe not the first year, but certainly after. These things don't grow that fast. And this was something the size of a golf ball. I'm not talking about something the size
0: of a pea. Well, this is, this is very sobering, because I, I, when we go to the hospital or the doctor, we want to think that we're putting our health and our lives really in the hands of people who will do right by us and who know what, what they're doing and, and, you know, that they're, they're not going to screw up.
1: No, it's very destabilizing. Because, look, when you're sick, you feel very vulnerable. You have this psychological need, need to believe in whoever it is who's going to be treating you has the capability and is going to deliver the cure that you so desperately need. And 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 when there's a notion that that might not be the case, it can be very destabilizing. But if that is the objective truth, I believe that people need to know the truth because if that is the truth and people know it, there are things that they can do to dramatically reduce the probability that they become one of those statistics. And We had another patient just the other day Had three back surgeries, probably all unnecessary, was in debilitating pain, and was being recommended by yet another surgeon to have a fourth surgery which would have fused her entire back from the the base of her neck all the way down to her tailbone. Probably the most complicated and severe um, back surgery one can do. We had A spine expert, evaluate her independently. He came to the conclusion that all of her nerves were fine, all of her muscles were fine, the pain was being caused by one specific muscle and there's an expectation that uh, with six weeks of a very specific physical therapy program, um, she'll be able to get off of all of the heavy-duty pain medications that she's on, um, reduce her pain to something that is Tolerable, and then over another six to eight weeks, probably get it down to nothing by simply energizing and strengthening a very specific muscle.
0: Well, this is all very interesting and, and sobering, and uh, buyer beware. I mean, this is good, good to know because I don't think people know it or, or want to know it, but but the truth is the truth, and I appreciate your time.
1: They need to know, and that's why that's my passion, and I'm I'm very grateful for your interest. That's why I wrote the Patients' Playbook. That's why I am podcasting under No Mistake Zone with Leslie Michelson. That's why I've got a website um, called The Patient's Playbook. There's lots of information available to everybody free of charge, and I need to bring about a revolution here to save people's lives.
0: Leslie Michelson is the author of the book The Patient's Playbook. There is a link to that book on Amazon.com on the show notes page for this episode of the podcast, located on our website, Something You Should know.
1: Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.
0: As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily, Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. I've always been envious of people who seem to be really organized. And not that I'm a slob. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty neat. <laughs> or a I'm medi- a medium neat. But I know I could probably do a lot better... But it's hard for me, and I'm always looking for ways to be more organized and, you know, neater. And one person who's a real master at this is Sue Crum. Sue is a speaker, a trainer, and a consultant, and she is author of a book called Clear Your Clutter. Welcome, Sue. And so what's your take? What is your take on this? Uh, Am I in the majority, or are most people a lot neater than I am?
2: Well, my take is that the overwhelming majority of us are not born with the organizing gene. 88% 88% of us, really. Uh, but you can remember back in school that there were certain children who had, oh, their pencils always sharpened, they were ready to go, they had their papers with their name on it being passed in just in time, and then the rest of us were looking for things, looking for the paper, looking for the pencil, looking to sharpen the pencil, and that's kind of the most of us. So we have to learn strategies that are going to work for us, and it isn't one-size-fits-all. We have to find Build on our own strength of what we're doing now to get to places on time, find important papers at home, and and build on what those strategies are in other areas of our life.
0: And what are simple ways to do that?
2: We have to start with something small and successful. And it may seem kind of counterproductive if everything's out of control, but we have to take a really small step first. Because then we'll see some success, and we'll be able to build on that. When we start out too big, and we go, "Oh well, today's the day I'm going to get organized," or "Today's the day we're clearing out the three-car garage," and we go out there by ourselves or with one other person at eight in the morning and drag everything out. Well, we we don't we don't have a plan. We don't have enough people to work with us, and we haven't figured out what we want the garage to look like and where we want everything to live. So. Starting much smaller, starting with the junk drawer in a kitchen, starting with the trunk of the car, starting with a bathroom drawer. That's a much better place to start.
0: Because that does what?
2: It builds the success, almost the success muscle in us. And we go, oh, that wasn't so bad. Oh, I figured that out. Okay, I can do this. And I can keep this small space under control. It's not like a storage unit. It's not like a three-car garage. It's just a small space, and I can take back control.
0: And then you just build on that. You go to the next one. You build
2: one. on that, right. And you look at really what are the gnawing parts of why we're in this dilemma. It seems um, we're really in this acquisitive society, acquiring things. So when we can't find something, we go and acquire another one, because we know the one we're looking for is in here somewhere, whether it's a a skateboard in the garage or whether it's a stapler in the house, but it's so convenient to just go get another one that that's what we do. So if we build on the small success of one junk drawer, one part of the refrigerator, one pantry, one desk where we're doing our work, uh, sometimes it's people, too, that we need to declutter from our lives, relationships that aren't going so well. it It all is connected, and it can get us out of control.
0: What do you think is the the biggest problem people have? Is it paper? Is it people? What is it?
2: It's paper. And even though they've been talking about the paperless society since uh, 1970s, it's still paper. And it's paper because everybody now has their own... Office Depot or their own Staples Center in their house, whereas years before that never took place. Everybody's got their printers and their cartridges and their own computers at home, and so people are printing a lot more information than they ever did before. And then sometimes it's it's uh, in the workplace. Um, people are concerned if maybe the files are going to go down, so I'm going to make a backup. Or I'm going to just, you know, cover myself by getting CCs or blind CCs. And paper is still the number one uh, pain that people have when they call me.
0: And the solution?
2: The solution, again, is to build on, on systems that have worked for that individual person. So for some people, you know, they they work okay with piles if their piles are of particular projects. For other people, piles are no good because everything's mixed in the pile. So it's kind of evaluating what's working with that person and building on that. Thinking of your office space like a cockpit of an airplane and having what you need close at hand. I have a, a free ebook that I can give to your listeners if they contact me at sucrum.com, and it has some simple strategies for them to just start right now with some real easy tips, and it's uh, free at sucrum.com, and it's a simple strategies you can do now to just start to clear back the clutter and take back control.
0: And give me a couple of those tips.
2: Well, one is really to start each day making the bed, and it sounds real simple and silly, but it really sets the tone for the day. It's the first thing you can say you've accomplished for the day, and whether you work from home or you work outside the home, whenever you go back into that master bedroom space, it's like, ah... This is under control in here, and our bed is 80% of the master bedroom. So just that one activity of pulling the covers back into place and smoothing things down can give a sense of, of calm and control back to an individual. It's a very powerful first step for people to take. Another one that's in my Simple Strategies You Can Do Now free ebook is closing the kitchen at night and announcing the kitchen is closed, even if you live by yourself. But you just get everything put away, sink is emptied, sink is cleared, and you announce, even if it's just to the cat, that the kitchen is now closed. And, you know, it's not, you're not running a 24-hour diner. So everybody's coming and going and with plates and cups and bowls and dishes. So you just close that down because then when you get out of the bedroom in the morning with the bed all made and you walk into the kitchen, ah, there's another sense of calm. So it's building more of those senses of calm.
0: And everybody knows that, I think. Everybody that, that uh, lives with clutter knows that when, when they do get it all cleaned up or ev- even in one room, that there is that sense of calm and, and that whatever that sense is in people that, that having things organized and neat gives you. And yet it's, for some of us, very hard to keep it that way.
2: Well, you have to go back and do little Jiffy Lube tune-ups Um, is how I describe it to my seminar participants and my clients. Um, I do virtual organizing as well as hands-on, but more and more virtual organizing by phone. And what I say to them is just because you've got now the master bedroom or your home office or your workplace office under control, it doesn't mean you're done. You have to be like slaying dragons. You have to be right on top of it and go, okay, I'm not putting it down. I'm putting it away. I'm not going to make a pile. I'm, I'm making a decision, not a pile. And it's finding a home for all those things. So if we start to, you know, just like with our cars, we can't just drive them till they drop over dead. We have to put gas in them and we have to give them a jiffy lube tune-up or some kind of oil change. So with our own spaces and our own calendar and our own relationships, we have to do the same kind of, Tune up. It doesn't take as long this time now because we have found homes for things. But we just go back and kind of tweak it.
0: Are there any things that people ask you about that um, that it, it come up over and over again of things that uh, you know if, if they only did this, it would just save so much trouble and confusion and and, and stress. Um.
2: They have to sign homes for things. So the stress that they get under is when there's no home for the car keys, and any open counter will do. So if there isn't any home for that, then one day they put them down coming in through the garage and they put them on the workbench, and another day they put them down on the kitchen counter, and then another day they have them in their pocket, and another day they're in their backpack. And so that adds tremendous stress because... Now they're going out the door rushing, usually, and they can't find which of those five areas are the car keys. Whereas if you assign a home and the car keys are always going on the dish at the door, then that's where they live. And the same thing goes for mail. If they have a landing pad and every place that the mail comes in, it goes to this one place, but if one day one per- person picks up the mail and they put it on the kitchen counter, and another day somebody else brings in the mail and they put it in their bedroom and somebody else put- brings it into the garage, through the garage, or into the family room, it- it's all over. And that's what adds the stress when you can't find things because it-, it doesn't have a home. Everything needs a home.
0: You know, that, that's great advice, because uh, I suspect that people who lose their car keys or can't find their wallet or, is, is because of just that reason, because there's no place that it is supposed to be.
2: Exactly, exactly. That's why I love Dorothy saying there's no place like home, and I use it a lot when I uh, speak and present, because, you know, our home is our sanctuary from the outside world, and, and, and yet our, our items need a home. And the reason that they end up out is because we haven't assigned it a home to live. And that's what happens with the, the stress of trying to get out the door in the morning, whether it's car keys or a bill that somebody was going to mail or something that was being turned in at the schoolhouse. If it doesn't have a, a place to live before it launches out the door, then it's like, where is that permission slip? Where Where is that money for the field trip? You know, They're just in a frantic... Um, state. And that doesn't start the day off really well for any of us.
0: Right. Yeah, that's great advice. Well, good. I've got what I need. I appreciate your time.
2: Oh, great. Great. Well, <laughs> if anybody on the call is looking for some free tips to get started, they can go to sucrum.com, uh, S-U-E-C-R-U-M.com, and they can get my free ebook And then they'll get my monthly e-tips for energized and efficient people.
0: Terrific. And, and the book, uh, Clear Your Clutter, there's a link to the book on the show notes page for this episode of the podcast, which is always located on our website, somethingyoushouldknow.net. Thanks, Sue. If you send a lot of text messages, you should be aware that adding punctuation to text messages can change how people receive your message. And the general opinion seems to be, that when it comes to punctuation in text messages, that less is more. Research published in the journal Computers and Human Behavior showed that when when you put just a, a period at the end of a text message, people perceive it as less sincere than no punctuation at all. On the other hand, an exclamation point at the end makes it seem super sincere. So, in response to an invitation, say, to go to dinner, for example... Saying yes and putting a period makes you seem not so sincere and not so interested. Yes, with no punctuation, just the word yes seems more sincere. And yes, with an exclamation mark at the end, seems extremely sincere. By the way, this applied only to text punctuation and had little effect on how people perceive the message in handwritten notes. And that is something you should know. That's this week's weekend edition of Something You Should Know. Please share it with a friend and head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. It would be greatly appreciated. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know